0: Others tend to forget
1: Come with us I'm not the movie
0: Oubliette Well met, listener, and welcome to episode 144 of Movie Oubliette, the bi-hemispherical podcast for forgotten fantastical films with me, Conrad, enjoying a sci-fi movie season in my local cinema in Cambridge, UK. And me, Dan, just melting down here in Melbourne, Australia. <laughs> We focus on forgotten fantasy, sci-fi and horror films because we love public urination, love spuds and monsters that suck all the meat off your bones, except your face. (laughs) Hello, Dan. (laughs) The face is the worst part.
2: It is. We all know that. (laughs) It's just just gristle. Stubbly bits, you know, teeth. Who wants to eat teeth? Yeah, nose is (laughs) terrible. So, so what movies have been playing at your local cinema? I,
0: yeah, it's really weird. They've just decided to put on uh, 2001. Wow. Uh, Interstellar. Mm. I didn't go and see 2001 because I'm a bit, I don't know, I'm just a bit over that mm. one. But mm-hmm. I did enjoy going to see Interstellar in the theatre because I didn't see it on the big screen at the time. Ah, right. And the sound design of that is just phenomenal. It's such an experience. On the big screen. Yeah. yeah, it's pretty intense. It does. Yeah, especially during that famous spinning docking sequence, which got an applause <laughs> in the theatre wow. that I was in. Yeah, People love that sequence. Yeah. But uh, what was interesting is my local Cineworld, they actually moved it from screen three, which is kind of a small screen, uh-huh. to screen one because so many people wanted to see it. And meanwhile, wow. Madame oh, okay. Webb, the latest uh, <laughs> Spider Man spin off, was relegated to a smaller uh, screen. No. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
2: Madame Webb is. Doing so well
0: in the box office, no, it's not so, yeah. And so, they're following up with Blade Runner, Blade Runner 2049. Oh, and great. I think that's it, yeah. So, I'm looking forward to both of those. Oh, they're all classics, they are. Interestingly, they're also showing Monty Python and the Holy Grail for its 44 and a half anniversary or something. Oh, it's okay. not really an anniversary, it's just something silly, which uh, might be relevant for today. Oh, maybe. <laughs> Maybe.
2: So you're melting. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's just Australia. That's, uh, <laughs> that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Meanwhile, I've, uh, have our listeners been chatting to us?
0: <laughs> they have. Yes. So we have a new patron, Erin. Hello, Erin. Thanks for supporting the show. yes. Thanks for the support. And we have people who are rediscovering old episodes. So we had a comment about Rogue, Ah, the the crocodile movie. Yeah, L Z Croc. Killer Croc movie. Yeah. And because of the director, Lisa md 23 said, I'd steered clear simply because I found Wolf Creek so disturbing, but I'm really glad you persuaded me to check this out. I have a real soft spot for creature features, and that usually means embracing a lot of cheesiness and bad acting. But this was refreshingly high quality on mm. every count. Yeah, it really was. really was. Mm. Yeah, I'm tempted to watch
2: all three or maybe there are four uh, Aussie Killer Croc movies just to compare (laughs) them all. But um, yeah, I think they're mostly going to be bad. But I don't know. Maybe
0: I'll be surprised. Yeah, you never know. There might be some more gems hidden in there. Mm. Mm. Well, we didn't find a gem in Shakma. But people are still talking about it, mostly about the star of the show, Typhoon the Baboon, Ah, about whom John Michael Rouse said, he's cute in The Fly before he turned inside out.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Yeah, not great. Dustin Rathbun said, typically behind the door. So all those scenes where he's like bashing against the door oh, yes, all the yes. time. Yes, yes, yes. Dustin says, behind the door was a female baboon. So Typhoon wasn't angry. He was excited. And if you happen to look closely, you can see just how excited he was. As oh. he was trying to get through that door. <laughs> really?
2: Oh, God.
0: Yeah. Yeah, apparently yeah,
2: horny. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. I noticed when I was doing some socials for TikTok, there's there's a scene at the end where he like pees on the ground. You can see him right. peeing.
0: <laughs> and it's not very scary. No, no. Again, peeing, that might come up in today's episode too. Oh yes. yes. <laughs> Eddie Coulter said Typhoon's in another movie called Order of the Black Eagle, where you not only see him wearing a tux and flying an ultralight plane, you also get to see him drive a baboon-sized tank and blow up a camp full of Nazis. What?
1: (laughs) What is this movie?
0: I really do not know, but it sounds (laughs) marvellous. Yeah. And we heard from Nick, who chose Shakma. For us to do. Oh, okay. (laughs) Yes, interested to hear what he thinks. So we were a little worried. Yeah, we were worried that we might upset him by throwing it back, but he said, "I only actually first watched it a few years ago. My brother and I have this tradition of putting on a late-night trashy horror film on Christmas Eve after a few drinks, and he suggested Shakma after seeing the trailer online. Uh-huh. I remember the beginning, a bit of the middle, and the ending. Perhaps the only bits of the movie you need to see? Question <laughs> mark. Yeah, and yeah. most likely nodded off during watching." You can't blame me for that. <laughs> wow! <Okay. laughs>
2: so not a big fan
0: then? Phew. <laughs> no, he just thought we'd have fun with it, and uh, yeah, we certainly did. So yeah, thanks, Nick. <laughs> yeah, we did. Yes, thanks, Nick. And finally, we heard from Surge of Cold Crash Pictures. Hello, Surge. Hello, Surge. Shakma has a great premise. A killer baboon goes on a rampage during an after-hours college D&D game, but it can't go very far within its limited budget. Hmm. A strong first act gives way to a soggy middle and boring finale. I wish I could go back in time and double the budget. Movie Hmm. Oubliette reviewed this one this week, and frankly, their podcast has much better pacing. (laughs) Thanks, it <laughs> Yes. So, yes, thank you, everyone, for getting in touch. We do love hearing from you. Mm, yeah, we do. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, Dan, what on earth could be popping out of the Oubliette <laughs> Forest this time? Yes, one moment, please.
2: Oh, uh. oh I'm, in, I'm in the Dark Ages. Oh, no. There's some sort of tournament going on. Oh,
0: very loud. Yeah,
2: knights flying everywhere.
0: Ooh. Watch
2: out. <laughs> a lot of blood. Okay, it's the movie.
0: Strapped to a turnip.
2: <laughs> yeah,
0: I'll come back. Ooh, let's have a Christian kiss. Ah, I'm back. Oh, thank goodness. So what do you have for us?
2: Yes, yeah, so today we are going to be discussing uh, from 1977 the fantasy adventure comedy jabberwocky Ooh. it's directed by terry gilliam uh, starring michael palin harry h corbett john Lim. I can't, I can't even pronounce this i don't yeah i don't know these actors because i'm not british it's mis, <laughs> a good try <laughs> uh warren mitchell max wall deborah fallender annette badland and uh, also a little cameo from Terry Gilliam himself. Hmm, marvellous. So, what happens in this movie? Ah, yes. Twas brillig and the slithy toves, did gyre <laughs> and gimble in the wabe. All mimsy were the borogoves, and the moam raths outgrabe. Beware mm. the jabberwock, my son. And so, the scene is set. The Jabberwock monster terrorises the land in the time of knights and jousting. Mm. But who will face the brutish beast? Dennis, a failed (laughs) barrel maker disowned by his father, travels to the castle to find the job with nothing but a potato. The king... (laughs) Bruno the Questionable declares a tournament to find a champion to slay the Jabberwock. Our Dennis, through a series of ludicrously unfortunate or fortunate events, ends up face to face with the creature. This movie has everything. Infidelity, gruesome violence, (laughs) urinating, roasted rats on sticks. But will Dennis be able to slay the Jabberwock? Let's find out, shall we, Conrad, after the break. Yes. And we'll be joined by a very fun guest. Yes. Yes. Someone versed in UK <laughs> cinema <and> comedic actors. <laughs> the Jabberwock Law. People I don't know about because I'm not British. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Our special guest today stepped away from his career in post-production to conduct the most exhaustive and no doubt exhausting deep dive into a worldwide cesspit of woeful filmmaking to bring us The Bad Movie Bible, a hilarious, insightful and definitive compendium of the 101... Or possibly 102 best worst films, as well as a glorious YouTube channel of the same name featuring wildly entertaining rundowns of knockoffs and cock ups. It is, of course, author and film critic. Rob Hill. Hello, sir. Hello, and thank you very much for having me. (laughs) Welcome. Yes, welcome, welcome. It's really exciting to talk to you. We were first introduced to your YouTube channel by one of our patrons, Boss Salvage, Mm. and just binged the whole thing. And then I was lucky enough to get your excellent book for Christmas from a friend and devoured that between Christmas and New Year. And what I particularly love about it is one of the most serious attempts to define that curious thing of what makes a good bad movie because it's
1: quite a tenuous thing isn't it it is yeah it's um it's a broad subject and I think the the factors that make a good bad movie as opposed to a bad bad movie are hugely diverse at the end of the day there are there are movies we love to hate or love to love to hate um <laughs> simply because they're cheesy or they're over the top or they're silly and there are movies we love because they objectively fail in such a spectacular way and that's not necessarily quite <laughs> the same thing but it, it, it sort of provokes the same response in us
0: yes dan i think that will probably resonate with you because you've often said on this pod that you love watching crap
2: yeah i don't know i i, I get a lot of enjoyment from terrible movies and even if they are bad and and i and you know i realize they are bad like it's still fun for some reason i still find things that could be better or like uh, uh sort of pinpoint ways that oh they should have done this they should have done that it's it's fascinating like one tiny thing can make a okay movie really terrible and it's, <laughs> it's just like a flip of a coin really
1: yeah yeah i know exactly what you mean it's often the result of um sort of misplaced ambition as well which can be the yeah. the most entertaining <laughs> kind of bad movie i find
0: Yes. As you say in your book, it has to be sincere. Somebody mm. must be trying. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs>
1: Sharknado is is fine in its own right and movies like that. But yeah, they're, they're not good, bad. They're different. Yeah. Yes. And
0: then there's Neil
1: Breen and all of
0: those <laughs> other wonderful filmmakers. Some of whom you even managed. I mean, you got Tommy Wiseau for an interview for your book, which I was very impressed with.
1: Yeah, that was a fun experience. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Anything about that you can share or are you under an NDA? No, no. He's exactly what what he seems to be. He's he's, he's just as deranged as you'd expect. Wow. He spent (laughs) half the interview talking about his underwear, which he was trying to market to a, to a broad audience i don't know quite how that went but. <laughs> wow okay but no Neil Breen sadly sadly not no, I did contact Neil and that yeah that ended up being a hilarious I mean it, it, to be honest it, it was kind of better that he didn't speak to me because his response was better than it could ever have been you know in an interview <laughs> wow it's just, just this angry denial that he has anything to do with this bad movie community and that actually his films are incredibly well received and well respected and well reviewed and you <laughs> for weeks he was sending me. Little reviews that someone somewhere had written that was clearly ironic, <laughs> but that he'd taken to heart as justification for his brilliance. Oh, so, wow. It's quite an experience talking, oh, dealing wow. with him. Oh,
0: bless. It must be amazing to live inside that kind of bubble. I'm always full of self-loathing and doubt, but Neil Breen is not so encumbered, which is great. <laughs> no, no. Well, the movie that you've chosen for us today, fortunately, is not the product of a deranged mind in that sense, although certainly a very original one. It's Jabberwocky it's the first film directed by Terry Gilliam without Terry Jones mm. can you kick us off by talking about your history with this film yes
1: yeah I, I mean I grew up with it um it's what it's it's probably one of the first sort of three or four videos I ever had back and I must have been eight or nine years old or something wow. and I think I'd been introduced to Monty Python um through my dad or my cousin or something And then um, Jabberwocky, I think it must have been on television because I don't think it was a, you know, like a retail video. I think it was recorded off the TV. And I got hold of it by swapping it with a friend of my parents' son's um, for the Yellow Submarine. Oh. I, thought, <laughs> I thought I'd thought i much rather have Jabberwocky. It was a favorite when I was young. We studied the poem in school when I was 10. I don't know quite why we were studying Jabberwocky at the age of 10. <laughs> and I took the opportunity to say, ah, did you know there's a film teacher? And she didn't, so... She recommended I bring it in. Oh, wow. And we got as far as the point where Warren Mitchell's shitting out of the window before she turned it <laughs> off. <laughs> oh, marvellous. And it, Sadly, the rest of the class never got to see it. Oh. Um, but it, it never left me. I, I continued to learn. Obviously, saw more and more of Terry Gilliam's films, and he became you know, one of my favourite filmmakers, probably my favourite living filmmaker. And I still think it's one of his best films. And I, I noticed, you know, going back to it for this podcast, Having a look on Rotten Tomatoes and so on. And it just isn't that well received. It's got, it's, I don't think it's even got a fresh rating on Rotten Tomatoes, if that means much. No. no. But I think it's a masterpiece. Interesting.
0: Because it's, Dan, you were saying it before we started recording, it clearly is a transitional work. Now, this is something you've been wanting to see for a while.
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, Terry Gilliam is is actually yeah he is one of my favourite directors of all time like I grew up watching uh, The Adventures of Baron Munchausen that was my favourite mm. film growing up as a kid Yeah, and I still love it mm. and, and I, I I almost don't want to cover it for the podcast because it was you know it was a big flop because I just have I cherish it so much I, d- I don't want to say anything bad about it <laughs> um, but yeah I, I love Terry Gilliam like I, I, The Fisher King 12 Monkeys Fear and Loathing like he's just got so many great movies and this this movie does feel like a monty python movie to me
1: yeah yeah it kind of but i think part of the reason for that i think is it, it kind of highlights uh, just how much um the holy grail for example owes gilliam mm-hmm. because a lot of it if, if you look back at the monty pythons tv stuff A lot of the connections that I've always made between Holy Grail and Jabberwocky aren't actually Python things. They're Terry Gilliam things. And I think the Holy Grail uh, and and Life of Brian as well, even though I I don't think he did so much work on that. There's something about the rhythm of them. There's something about the editing. There's something about the sound design and the texture of it all Mm. that is pure Terry Gilliam, not Monty Python. They have these crowds of people and you, the sound is so layered that you kind of focus in and out of different things happening and there are there's all this sort of background noise, but background textures, people, you know, flies buzzing and people wailing and so on. That's, you know, that's not Monty Python, it's Terry Gilliam. But I do agree with you that it's a transitional film for, for him, though, still.
2: Yeah, because I read somewhere that he he said that he want, this was almost in response to Holy Grail and he wanted to get away from the whole sketchy kind of yeah. structure of that movie. But it still feels very sketchy to me. Yeah. Like, it feels like yeah. a sketch after a sketch after a sketch with not much narrative tissue.
1: Yeah. It does, yeah. So I re-watched it for the first time in probably a couple of years <laughs> recently. And that's one of the notes I made was that it still feels kind of like sketches yeah. lumped together. But there is still a through narrative and things are established early and paid off late. And it's not as sketchy as the early pi- as the Python sure, films, but sure. it is perhaps less more sketchy than gillian would become but i was listening to the commentary which again i hadn't listened to since i bought the dvd 20 some years ago wow yeah and um it's funny gillian was saying yeah i am so glad we got away from the sketch thing and i'm so glad that it doesn't feel sketchy and it doesn't it, it kind of still does really yeah it does and
0: the criterion edition which has i don't know if it's the same commentary it has michael palin on there as well yes yeah Michael's talking about you know it's still it's a bit too pythony there are sort of python gags in here and I'd much rather we played it straight mm. because Visually, I think it does. I mean, in terms of the production value and the cinematography of it and the, the grittiness of it, certainly, it feels much more of a piece and it feels much more Terry Gilliam than perhaps the co-directed um, Holy Grail was. It feels like it's actually trying to create a cohesive world yes. that yeah. our main character, Dennis, is just bumbling through, sort of from one sketch to yeah. another. Uh, yeah, I mean, the, the, the <laughs> setting, the, the castles,
2: the the costumes like it's mm. pretty you know it's impressive it's mm.
1: stunning to look at i think and con- especially when you consider they they had no budget for it mm. the mm. environment that gilliam creates in that film is, is second to none it, it's i mean you you don't get a richer and more textured and more sort of viscerally real environment <laughs> in in any other kind of movie i don't think that it's it's a gilliam thing, isn't it? I mean all his movies have it to one extent or another. Mm. The main note I came away with after again going back to it after a couple of years is it's just so dirty. It's, Everything it's is filthy. so yeah. dirty <laughs> and so <laughs> broken and so old and, and that's the costumes, the the you know, the sets, the Absolutely everything. It's, it's just fabulous in that respect. Yeah,
0: it's so much so that I think this is the reason for the lack of a fresh rating because I'm not sure that critics have revisited it significantly mm. since it came out, but certainly when it came out, it was marketed in the US as a Monty Python film, even though they did not want it to be. Ah. So people went in expecting Holy Grail. What they got was not... Monty Python all the way through it certainly isn't consistently funny in the same way and also yeah it's dirty it's grimy Mm. and there were lots of reviews at the time saying how dare you force us to sit through a hundred minutes of such ugly people covered in filth all these bad teeth (laughs) yeah well yeah we can't help that we're British but, (laughs) but you know 1977 it was not the era of gritty
1: filmmaking necessarily in the mainstream at least no that, that's right yeah yeah and as you say the, 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 it was marketed as a monty python film and i think we know there's no better way to curse a movie's box office than to market it as something that it isn't mm-hmm. and yeah, you know if you, if you read the the critics at the time especially i think Gilliam mentions this actually particularly in the countries where python were popular already the reviews are this isn't as funny as Python. And it's not trying to be. It's not meant to be gag a moment, gag a second. It's mm. it's meant to be a bit more than that. Mm,
2: yeah. Yet it, it, it kind of does feel a little bit gag a, a second. Like every scene <laughs> is just utter chaos. Yeah. Um, like <laughs> complete absurdity. <laughs> yeah. Either just yeah. strange things happens or <laughs> I don't know what's actually happening. Like people are talking over <laughs> each other. It's just, yeah. It's chaotic.
1: It is chaotic. That's another word I wrote down. Actually, yeah, it. it the, I think that's Gilliam trying to, trying to muster a sense of the horror of the, t- you know, the <laughs> fact that nothing is. Nothing is controllable. Every, everything seems slightly out of control in, in in this world. You know, no one, everyone yeah. is just on the brink of starvation or murder or some other form of death, and it's just <laughs> they all sort of exist, particularly Dennis, in this kind of swirling mayhem of misery and horror and bleakness. <laughs> Being British, I think that's just great. Sure. <laughs>
0: What's enjoyable is seeing, again, a typical Monty Python approach is taking a modern sensibility and modern sociological concerns and then just dumping them into the Dark Ages. Exactly. So you've got Dennis, who's not interested in becoming a craftsman as a cooper, like his father. He's just interested in efficiency and making an efficient business that he can profit from. And his Disney I Want song would just be about travelling two miles and marrying... the girl that's in his own village yeah he's, he's yeah. the most mundane little man that you could yeah. ever imagine and he's our central hero brilliantly played by michael palin oh, it mm. be said.
1: it's just a delight <laughs> watching him isn't it I, I i've got a theory with with monty python that there's two stages of love for monty python it's the first one where you think john cleese is the best one mm. then you mature a bit and you realize actually michael palin is everything it's all about michael palin <laughs> it's, it's certainly his acting it's just just it's just wonderful
2: yeah so so dennis is is kind of our accidental hero like yeah. he's not even trying to be <laughs> heroic or or courageous or or anything he's he's got very low ambitions he doesn't want to get with the princess he doesn't want to slay the big monster but he does <laughs> somehow <laughs>
1: All he wants is Griselda. Well, his his ambitions are. It's all established brilliantly in the opening scenes. I think with Warren Mitchell, who's a British character actor, be very familiar to to British listeners, he, who um, is the the local successful businessman. You know, in a, in a very suburban way. And there's a brilliant exchange that sums up everything at the beginning where. Warren Mitchell's trying to show off. He's called um, Mr. Fishfinger. He's trying to show off because he's been over to you've been over to Motley, which must be all of two miles away. And Dennis's reaction to the, of wonder to this oh my this this jet setting sort of. International figure, he's too marvel, and and that's that's the world that Dennis lives in, and that that establishes him perfectly. His his ambitions are unbelievably small. They are, and and the film itself is a really fascinating example of a fairy
0: tale being deconstructed, mm. because you just have the princess who's completely bought in to this narrative she is convinced she's going to be rescued from a tower at some point and marry a prince and live happily ever after and is wonderfully naive in her own way and dennis is just bumbling through life from one thing to another with no ambition who ends up accidentally slaying the jabberwocky or the Jabberwock, I think actually is what it should be called, and being forced to marry the princess and given half the kingdom, and he's gutted, absolutely
1: gutted. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> all, he, all he wants is his beloved Griselda. Yes, is absolutely fantastically played. Um, I think there's a there's a point in the, in Terry Gilliam's commentary when he's talking about her at the the end when she comes back into it at the end, and. There's a, a shot which she's not center of. It's it's her dad, Mr. Fishfinger, who's doing the talking. She's just stood next to him trying to make herself appealing to a knight. <laughs> and what she's doing is grade A. It, you know, it, it's extraordinary acting. Her face <laughs> isn't still for a moment. Every feature is darting about her face (laughs) desperately trying to figure out the best way to impress and she's sort of wiping mud off and doing her hair and everything. Mm. It's it's such a great performance. I've got in my notes I have to remember her name. Oh, Annette Badland. That's it, that's it that's it. She's just fantastic. It's her first film apparently. Which is
0: not true of many of the rest of the cast because you've pretty much got, I mean it may be completely baffling for an international audience but you've, you've pretty much got a who's who of 70s British comedy going on here because I mean not not least, of course, you've got a couple of the Pythons, Palin and Jones. You've also got John Le Mesurier from Dad's Army. You've got Warren Mitchell from Till Death Do Us Part and in Sickness and in Health. Harry H. Corbett from Steptoe and Son. You've got Bernard Breslaw from the Carry On movies, who we've bumped into in this podcast as the Cyclops in Krull. Mm. And even from the history of music hall, you've got Max Wall yeah. as King Bruno the Questionable. <laughs> For a British audience, this is just like who isn't in this movie? Yeah. This is really amazing,
1: and um, we're we'll probably also getting mean, rightly say that a lot of these names won't be familiar to an international audience, but. It's getting to the point where they wouldn't be familiar to a to a British audience, I think, as well. Certainly oh. below a certain age, because yeah. they they're, they're almost all forgotten, or you know, overly forgotten, if that makes sense. Mm. I mean, Max Wall was was forgotten even at the time. He, he'd been, you know, his career was all but over, I believe, and he'd been a huge musical star, you know, between the wars. Mm. And I, as you say, playing Bruno the questionable here, who is I think probably my favourite character, <laughs> certainly my favourite dynamic is the one between he and John mesurier <laughs> who plays his um, kind of chamberlain. The old married couple <laughs> dynamic that they that they have going is just fabulous, and it's because it's it's kind of almost a riff on Dad's Army as well, because mesurier is naturally playing a very similar character to his Sergeant Wilson in Dad's Army, and he's the sort of second in command, but doesn't seem to have an awful lot of respect for the superior he's meant to be in awe of. And it just goes to show how brilliantly character actors could, back in the day, and maybe still now, do a certain thing, just do one thing absolutely brilliantly.
0: Yeah, I love his character name as well,
1: Pasle Hugh. Yeah. <laughs> There's also, which um, I'd completely forgotten actually, Dave Prowse, Darth Vader, yes. is um, plays both of the knights. The Black Knight is <laughs> the obvious the red herring, which I hadn't realised was what he what the other knight's called. Oh, what's yes. the fish? The, the knight <laughs> oh. who is set up to be the to be the hero. I have I always just thought he's got a fish on his helmet, and that's kind of funny. It never occurred to me that it's a red herring, and he's set up oh to be God. the hero, but then isn't. <laughs> so he's literally called the red herring that that character. That's hilarious. Yeah,
0: Palin doesn't know that until Gilliam mentions it on the commentary, yes, yes. which is like oh, twenty wow. years later. <laughs> wow. Yeah. It's funny you mention that David Prowse is in this, Darth Vader, the same year. I'm not sure if they shot this before they shot Star Wars or if it was concurrent, but he was certainly in both. Mm. And we also have... Kenneth Colley, who plays one of the religious fanatics, and he was Admiral Piat in Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi, one of the few Ah, uh, senior members of the Empire that didn't get throttled to (laughs) death. And he's hilarious as the
1: religious fanatic. He's so funny, isn't he? He's
0: absolutely determined to be flagellated.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah insists on setting himself on fire and catapulting himself out of the castle. Yes. <laughs>
0: and so was the stunt man, apparently. Yes. Oh. Gilliam mentions right. this on the commentary. The stunt man was determined to be fired over the walls of the castle on fire. Really? And they said, "No, we really must test this with a dummy." So they tried, and of course, it splatted straight into the wall. Oh my and, god! Uh, so they said, "No, you're not doing this. We're just going to do a dummy. It's going to look stupid. It's fine." Yeah. Right. Okay. <laughs> oh my
1: god. <laughs>
2: I kind of wanted to just cover a few of the ridiculous scenes. Okay. There's just so many things that just kind of happen to Dennis. Yeah, yeah. He gets into the castle by just sneaking in the in, in the side door because one of the guards is taking a shit. Is that is that <laughs> yes. right? <Yeah>. Yes, <laughs> of course. And then he 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 uh, during the tournament he he follows a turnip that falls on the ground and it just keeps rolling. Into an armory guy, <laughs> uh, and then he gets led off to the armory to help with them. But then he causes just havoc, yeah, and yeah. uh, everything just like collapses. Just so many of these kind of like what is going on scenes that kind <laughs> of just lead him in, in places that he just seems to be okay in, like the trebuchet catapult scene as well. Just like. What is this?
1: <laughs> There's almost kind of an abstract element to it, isn't there? Yeah, it's, yeah, we follow him for a spell anyway. We we just follow Dennis through these increasingly awful experiences that he's being subject to that he doesn't really deserve and that he can't do anything about because he's so ineffectual. Yeah, so that's one of my favourite scenes actually. <laughs> that in the workshop mm. where they've hoisted the knights up like <laughs> like cars and everything just turns completely to shit purely and simply because Dennis comes in with a bright idea. And it's just marvelous, and it it, again perfectly sums up that the the kind of the modern issues transposed to back to medieval times scenario that that Gilliam's (laughs) going with. You know, Dennis just can't help but try to improve. The, the environment, you try to update right. the working practices and so on, and it ju- and it leads to yes. complete mayhem. Yeah, he's, yeah. He's,
0: he's trying to do a time and motion study, isn't he, in the armory, <laughs> and causes complete pandemonium. Yeah, that's another one where we've got another great British actor turning up, Brian Glover, as the armorer. Yeah, who, huh, right. I think most people were recognized from the pub in An American Werewolf in London and right. maybe Alien Three as well. Yeah, and uh, and Porridge if you're British. Mm. I would say as a non-Brit
2: and also I didn't I didn't really grow up with Monty Python. I, I did watch Monty Python later on in my, sort of in my twenties. I've watched, you know, Holy Grail, Meaning of Life and Life of Brian and a few of the Series, not not a huge amount. So for me, this movie does seem quite foreign. Like I feel like there are a lot lots of jokes I just didn't get, and I I know yeah, I'm missing yeah. something. And and even actor wise, I mean, apart from Michael Palin and and Terry Gilliam's like little cameo, like I, didn't, <laughs> I don't really know anyone.
1: No. Yeah, it's, <laughs> yeah. There's there's yeah. Looking at looking at it, they, they are all incredibly domestic. I mean, John Bird, who plays the Herald, <laughs> who who's constantly getting trumpeted over. Yeah, he's he's another uh, legendary British right. actor, but in in very in a very narrow sphere. You know, even in this country. Right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Because I feel like I'm that critic from the seventies that yeah. thought they were going to see a Monty Python. I was expecting John Cleese to pop up, or you know, all of them, but just wasn't quite that and and all the actors that were in this movie i i didn't know who they were so
1: gilliam kind of made a rod for his own back with this because he, he desperately wanted to break away from python and you know that, that's why he didn't put all the pythons in it mm. but at the same time he he stayed with material that was incredibly python-esque and you know in an era that they'd already done i mean the, we mentioned earlier about how there's perhaps at times it gets a bit too python Considering it it has a much straighter tone generally, Mm. and the um, hide and seek competition to choose the winner of the you know rather than jousting, the the king has the knights do hide and seek, (laughs) and that that is that is a scene straight out of the Holy Grail. You know, it, it looks like it, it sounds like it, it works like it, and. You know, if you don't want to be associated with Python, don't do stuff like that. Maybe. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
2: I did find like the humor with the sort of the potty humor, where you know, there's the, the character with his ass sticking out the window, taking a shit while having a conversation <laughs> with Dennis, or, or the scene where Dennis wakes up and and the guards are urinating off the wall on
1: his face.
0: It's just like this is classic Python, right? Yeah, yeah. He,
1: get, yeah he, he does. He gets peed on at least twice in the film. Doesn't he? <laughs> yeah, he
0: does. Yeah, Griselda's younger brother. I think it is, is oh, it Roger. Yes, that's yeah, right. We, we get full frontal child penis <laughs> <laughs> within the first <laughs> few minutes of this movie. <laughs> it's no wonder that the Americans were just completely baffled and
1: outraged. Well, yeah, because we also get in the first moments unbelievable levels of gore. Frankly, yeah. The opening, I think it's the first scene, which is a, a it's T- Terry Jones's cameo. In which he's killed by the Jabberwock, <laughs> is that, with that the shot of him still alive, looking down at his body. You know, it's, it's much like the ending of meaning of life when his Mr. Creosote character gets blown oh, apart. Yes, he's, yes. he's actually pulling the same kind of expression as he looks down at his body with guts and blood hanging off it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's that's proper horror movie stuff. <laughs>
2: <laughs> it did remind me of like Sam Raimi almost when he's kind of getting yeah, lifted it? up into the air. It's just like, wow, this is like visceral almost.
1: I was mm. thinking that, but I don't remember this being so Sam. but of course, pre-Sam Raimi. Yeah. And interestingly, uh, Gilliam credits Jaws with that, oh. I don't quite see. I mean, I, the editing—you see, you know, cutting away to the and the view of the, you know, the first-person view of the Jabberwock as where well. you get that from Jaws, maybe. But yeah, it is incredibly Sam Raimi—the the, the kind of mm. visceral kinetic mayhem of the of the camera work. Yeah, yeah, this sure. has
0: much more and I think Gilliam mentions this in the commentary. It has much more of a cartoonist's sensibility too. Hmm. Because a lot of the stunts where people and knights are being thrown sideways across rooms or splatting on walls and then slowly sliding down. It's <laughs> very much like a live action cartoon, which is not yeah. something that Python did particularly. Ah. That's very
1: true. Yeah, there's a lot of um, every time a Knight is struck violently, he doesn't just fall off his horse or fall down. We cut to what is obviously a suit of armor that's been dropped from a tall building. <laughs> yeah. <and it's> like, <laughs> no matter what the, the action is, it results in the knight being hurled hundreds of feet. <laughs> yes, yes. Horizontally as well. <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah, I love the visual style of it, which is not something that Gilliam did again, particularly particularly I don't think.
1: No it's I mean he's obviously always been a very visual director but it's so obviously inspired by medieval art but not just medieval art but art in in general there's Mm. you know there's a lot of um, Bruegel in there there's a lot of Caravaggio in the way that the Maison scene works with characters or maybe the blocking there's lots of Mm. lots of sort of staged shots of one character kind of leaning into another character and a a character gesticulating. And the camera doesn't move. The characters fill the frame. And it looks just like a Caravaggio painting. Mm. It's quite beautiful.
0: Yeah, with the lighting as well. Yeah. What I loved about that is how they use darkness for walls in some sets because they didn't actually have any. So it's just (laughs) candles and letting things fall away into blackness. Right. And the cinematographer... It's Terry Bedford, right. who also did Holy Grail. But I mean, this is something else, I think, in terms of... I mean, visually, it really is beautiful. I mean, it's, it's beautiful shit, but it's beautiful.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and it's something that apparently there was a lot of feuding over because the, the cinematographer didn't think they should be doing this. He's... he's seemed to think that there was lots of money and wasn't happy to be having to make these compromises but it does work because it, it just adds to the it's a very dingy film anyway mm. You know, it's a very dingy look, it's obviously it's shot in natural light as much as possible and that's natural light in Wales which isn't going to be the most determined of, of natural lights <laughs> no. apparently they, they regularly had huge arguments about what they were doing and whether or not it could be done better and Gilliam just had to keep saying we haven't got the money. Mm. Right, yeah,
0: so this was made for about half a million wow. pounds, I should say. And according to one book, the film distributors' receipts were sort of about £479,000. So they almost sort of got their money back, but not oh, really. So, yeah, it
1: was a flop. <laughs> yeah yeah someone took a dive on that but at the same time though it's been on home video for 40 years now and i mean i've bought it on at least three formats there must be other people who have (laughs) Mm. i I get the feeling that it's done you know it's been a bit of a cult hit on on home video maybe but i could be wrong about that
0: no i I certainly think it found its life in that format in the 80s for sure
2: now it's time for random trivia
0: Okay, it's trivia time. Conrad, what did you find with a, a bunch of rats on sticks today? <laughs> so Harry H. Corbett, who plays the squire, who cuckolds Bernard Breslau's landlord, <laughs> he apparently, when the hair and makeup lady visited him to talk about his look for the film... She was talking about either cutting his actual hair if he grew it a bit longer or maybe making a wig for him. And whilst she's having the discussion with him, she suddenly realises that Mr Corbett is wearing a wig and is not acknowledging that fact. Which was awkward. So he said, well, yeah, we could do it with my real hair, but I think you should make a wig just in case. So she went to the famous wig makers in London that does wigs for all the movies Mm -hmm. and theatre productions and said, I've got a bit of a sticky situation here. He's he's sort of treating it as though he doesn't have a wig. (laughs) And they said, no, it's fine. Corbett does this all the time. Oh. We just make a wig topper that can go over his wig. What? So he is wearing two wigs throughout no. the movie. Oh <laughs> Which I think is just lovely as oh another God. example of Neil Breen-like self-delusion. Jeez. <laughs> That's amazing. Bless him. And that's our trivia.
2: <laughs> so the Jabberwock creature—it's—it's it's not a dragon. No,
1: it's a bird. Yeah. Funny enough, I was, so I watched it with my ten-year-old son, and at the end, he said, "Why doesn't it just breathe fire?" <laughs> and I said, "It, it can't. It's—it's it's not a dragon." Yeah. And he said, "Then why—why why is everything on fire then?" <laughs> So, yeah, yeah, that's just Cherry Gilliam. Yeah, that's just, <laughs> there's going to be smoke everywhere. There's going to be patches that are on fire for no particular reason. Yeah,
0: yeah. And of course, you don't see the Jabberwock until the very end of the movie, yes. but I do love its reveal, which is entirely through the point of view of Dennis in one of these helmets with just the, the slit for the eyes. That's right. But it's a fantastic yeah. bit of costuming and, and creature design as well. It
1: is, isn't it? And it's based very closely on an original illustration from uh, Alice Through the Looking Glass, I think, was the book that it appeared in, wasn't it? Mm. And like the uh, the main artwork as well, you know, the main artwork, the poster artwork, is lifted straight from the book. Mm. Yeah. It's very faithful.
0: It is, yeah. John Tenniel. And the, the way that they achieved it, I think the stunt guy is standing in it backwards. So his oh. the legs fold in the right way, like chicken legs. Yeah. Because uh, his knees are obviously going the other way. And he's actually, his arms are out of the back, sort of flapping the wings around. Right. It just tricks the human eye because you're just not expecting to see a body in that configuration. So it just completely fools you. And they also did the 70s thing that they did in Alien as well, where they have a duplicate knight's costume for a child. And it's a child ah, that's doing battle with this right. thing. Really, I did not know
1: that. Yeah. Wow. I mean, it's obviously shot in such a way to create a impression of scale that it probably didn't have. Yeah. But I, I didn't know that. That's very wow, wow. Yeah.
2: I wasn't sure about that last scene as well. Like, so there's there's a kind of a
1: showdown between the Black Knight and Dennis.
2: Why? Yeah, I don't know. Yeah.
1: I, I, <laughs> um, it's not very clearly established, but the Black Knight, I think, is dispatched by the Guild leaders because they don't want the Jabberwock killed by Red Herring, who's meant to be... Who, Red Herring and yes. Dennis go out together. Dennis has become Red Herring's squire. They go out together to kill the Jabberwock. The Black Knight then attacks Red Herring because the Guild have sent him to oh, to do that. Right. So once the re, once Red Herring's dead, I suppose Dennis is has to go too he's he's part of the same team. Yeah that uh, makes okay. sense. Yes yeah, <laughs> all right. But it isn't very clearly established <laughs> no. at all. It's it's one of the, it's one of the few plot points that that doesn't really come through that the yeah. guild have have yeah. done
2: that. Cuz there's also a whole bunch of these kind of menacing guys just kind of surrounding Dennis as well. Yes. <laughs> it's,
1: again, it's just a Terry Gilliam movie. You're not going to find a quarry in a Terry Gilliam movie that isn't full of filthy, animalistic people yeah. scurrying about in the mud and oh scraping God. things to eat off the ground and so right. on.
0: <laughs> One thing that is very Terry Gilliam, certainly at this point in his career, around the time of Brazil particularly, is there's a bit of socio-economic satire going on. For example, The monarchy is shown as something that is literally crumbling, which is (laughs) quite enjoyable just as a visual gag. But, you know, discussions in the Great Hall are interrupted by debris falling from the ceiling. At one point, King Bruno offers his princess daughter the West Tower and it promptly falls apart outside the window (laughs) as he gestures towards it. And uh, when her prince does finally come to rescue her while she's busy having a discussion with Dennis... He unfortunately, the stone that he's holding onto in the windowsill just breaks and falls away, so he's toast. Mm. So, yeah, I quite enjoyed seeing this sort of scabby, falling apart vision of leadership. Yeah, and at the same time, also this underlying discussion about well, we've got to keep this whole politics of fear monster in the woods thing going because it's actually pretty good for business.
1: <laughs> yeah, there's there is a it's mm. it's interesting, it's an interesting dynamic because, as you say, yeah, you've got the the. Monarchy is literally crumbling, and it, it is fabulous. I mean, Bruno's sitting there eating meals, and huge waves of dust and <laughs> yeah. masonry will just collapse onto the table next to him. He doesn't even blink. He doesn't even acknowledge it most of the time. <laughs> no. Yeah, You'd expect it then to maybe have kind of quite socialist politics, but actually it's kind of quite critical of the idea of unions or guilds, as, as it mm. would have been then. And the way that the business leaders control the situation, as you say, and exploit it is incredibly, again, modern politics and modern concerns transposed onto medieval times and medieval characters. Yeah. But it makes them out to be just like today's, you know, not entirely uh, <laughs> likable business leaders. It probably yeah. may be summed up in the, in the, the scene where they race through the town. Because yes. being a, a wealthy man of the time, you would apparently be carried by four men on a, on a chair, basically, <laughs> as like kings in cartoons are. <laughs> and there's a scene where where these three guild leaders are moving towards the center of the city in these contraptions being carried. And they're talking to each other as they do it. And they start whipping <laughs> the carriers to, yeah. <laughs> to get them just a few inches ahead of their competitor guild leader (laughs) or whoever he is and it gets to the point where they're just running full pelt and people are falling off and it gets completely Mm -hmm. out of hand but that satire you know taken to the extreme yeah yeah yeah, it It is
0: wonderful I note that Terry Gilliam majored in political science I think so I'm not surprised to see this sort of seeping into his narrative yeah so I don't I don't know a lot about Terry Gilliam
2: his sort of career I didn't I didn't even know he was American (laughs) wow until I listened to part of the comic Being one of my favorite directors, I did not know that and so he he was american and he joined the pythons fairly sort of he was a late comer to the group
1: i guess i think he was with them from the start but oh, he kind he? of worked separately oh, the, well right. they all kind of worked um separately strangely they they, they wrote in little groups basically sure, sure, amongst sure. themselves and then met to compare ideas and gilliam's role within that context was to come up with animations animated links between the sketches and so right. on. that was that was basically his job so he was a full-blown member of the pythons but he, his his role role was very different to the others right
2: right because i didn't even know he was an animator because there there were sort of sketches that
1: he'd done for this film that were realized yeah i I believe that he he storyboarded everything yeah but also some of his anime i noticed there's actually some of his animation in it at the end Mm. there's a cloud shot at the end which is I'd never really noticed before, but it's clearly his style. Yeah, the riding off into the sunset with mm. the miserable happy ending. Yes. <laughs>
0: yeah. Coming to you live from the Movie Oubliette Theatre, it's the prestigious Moobly Award.
2: Hello, it's that special time of the pod, the Moobly Awards, where we nominate our favourite raw potato tasty parts of the film and a
1: number of accidentally <laughs> monster slaying categories. Best quote. As it is, I don't really have a favourite quote as such, but I love everything uh, to do with the potato. <laughs> everything surrounding the potato. <laughs> the, the scene where Dennis gets it, but also the scene where he's trying to get into the <laughs> castle to begin with. And you're not allowed into the castle grounds unless you've got property, unless you've got something. Mm. And Dennis doesn't have anything. But then the guards realise he's got a mouldy potato and that mm. makes him rich in their eyes. <laughs> yeah. And that whole exchange <laughs> where the guards are in awe at, at what you can do with a potato, you would live off that for a week, all that stuff... That's one of my favourite dialogue scenes. Let's say that's that's. I love all the potato stuff.
2: Yeah, that scene was so strange to me because it con- it keeps continuing. Like he Dennis mm. goes away, but then like oh wait, show us your legs, and then he just slowly, slowly <laughs> drops his.
1: In fact, that, that's my favourite quote. That's my favourite. Show us your legs. I think that that's probably my favorite. that's the, that's the pinnacle of that scene. That's the absolute. And then the reaction is just something like, nah. Yeah, like, yeah. What, 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 what were you looking for in these legs exactly that would have made a difference to your response? I
0: don't know. I've, I've no idea. My favourite comes from, I mentioned Kenneth Colley, who of course plays Admiral Peart in the Star Wars movies. I do love the scene where he is screaming about the fact that all of the punishments that they were going to visit upon Dennis for being a heathen, they get a bit jealous because they're flagellants and they want to visit all of this punishment on themselves. So he says... I want to trace across the firmament a glowing ball of flame, a testament to our godliness and piety. And somebody else says, what does that mean? And he says, I don't know, but I want it. (laughs) Best hair or
1: costume? It's a tough call, isn't it? Because, I mean, as, as you've revealed, there's a hell of a story behind one of the hairstyles in this movie <laughs> yeah so that aside it it's Dennis isn't it is his fantastic bowl cut mm-hmm. that I think was was it um Terry Gilliam's wife gave him I, I want to say or yes yeah yes, no, it, is. It, it's ah. just it's just fantastic it's exactly what it should be <laughs> <laughs> yeah
0: it is yeah it is so unglamorous and done to his own hair so <laughs> mm. quite brave of him I think For me, I absolutely adored all of the knights. We've mentioned the (laughs) knight of the red herring. But my particular favourite is the one that appears to have like a stuffed toy of a dog sort of emerging yeah. <laughs> from yeah. the top of his helmet. Yeah, it looks like a sort of a plushy dog head orange with flappy ears as well. So,
2: he
1: yeah, yeah, it's yeah. just hilarious. Most 70s moments. That's a tough call, isn't it? Because it's obviously, it's made by people who weren't really a part of the 70s even in the 70s and it's mm. set in medieval times <laughs> yeah and so on I, nothing stands out to me i suppose maybe the uh, the 1970s van that appears in one of the shots towards the end when the black knight falls off his horse really you, you see <laughs> you? Li- you literally see half of the makeup <laughs> van in the shot and i suppose that's no the way. most 1970s thing in the movie <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah but I think Gillingham mentions this and he says that you don't notice. Oddly enough, you don't notice. I didn't notice it.
1: It's a very fast yeah. shot. It's about 12 frames long, that shot. And the van right. is the same colour as <laughs> much of the background anyway. So uh, it doesn't stand out, but it is really there when you notice it. It's really yeah. quite prominent when you see it. Right. Yeah.
0: I, I thought the most 70s thing about this was the needless female full-frontal nudity. <laughs> I did think yeah. about that, actually, yes.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> Poor Deborah Fallander as the princess, an American, so she shipped over to merry old England and then forced to do that. Mm.
1: <laughs> it's the same as the full-frontal in Life of Brian. It, it's not... Exploitative in and of itself, and it does serve the joke. It Mm. is funny, yeah. But yeah, it's still, it's still pretty Mm. seventies. Favorite
0: scene. scene. I'm not sure I have a particularly favorite scene. I do have a favorite shot, however, and it's during the jousting, and there is a just this glorious slow motion shot of just bits of of night flying through the scene (laughs) with a spray of blood and King Bruno in the background just looking utterly delighted (laughs) with with the goings-on. He's just clearly enjoying the fact that despite all of his advisors' advice that this is wasteful, that they're just killing vast swathes of knights that they don't have Mm. many of and there's no point to it, but he just loves this as a form of entertainment, thinks it's great.
1: Mm. Yes. (laughs) He's got such a fantastic demented grin that he keeps doing at Maxwell in, in that scene as he's getting more and more covered in blood. Yes.
0: And nobody mentions it. You keep cutting back to them. It's just more and more blood on them <laughs> and nobody's mentioning it. They're sitting in the royal box soaked by the end of it. Yeah.
2: Yeah. It's very graphic. Like it's a lot of blood, but it almost looks like a painting by the end of it. Like it's,
0: it's, it's mm. quite striking. Yeah. 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 It's grotesque and humorous, but also beautiful. I don't yeah. know.
1: <laughs> Caravaggio, by way of. Bosch basically which is (laughs) kind of the look of the whole film yeah pretty much Mm, yeah yeah (laughs) most cliche moment in terms of movie cliches I I don't think it's that bad I don't think it's that guilty but in terms of Terry Gilliam cliches and Monty Python cliches up to a point I mean yeah just the dirt and the horror and the griminess and the I suppose that's a cliche for these guys really but Mm, it's also one of the most appealing things about it for me that the the general just the, the atmosphere of filth and horror and misery and I love the way (laughs) and and Gilliam's great at this in all of his films and it is a Terry Gilliam cliche I suppose the way he layers the sound in the background so that they're often just characters you don't know and you've never met but you can just hear someone wailing in misery just somewhere (laughs) distant in the background and you can hear the flies buzzing around the corpses and uh, that's a cliche I guess for Gilliam and it's it's one that I I love and it really works Mm. yeah Mm -hmm. yeah
0: yeah I was going to go with The Accidental Hero, which, Mm. particularly in comedies, of course, so, I mean, I kept being reminded of Army of Darkness while I was watching it, although, of course, that's Sam Raimi and much later, so that's interesting. But also The Wizard of Oz... So Dorothy shows up and kills one witch and then accidentally kills another one later yeah. on. So, yeah, I feel like The Accidental Hero
1: is quite it, a good... Yeah, it uh, is. It's a hero's journey movie, isn't it? As well. I'd never thought about it this is, before. It yeah. is, It is essentially the monomyth. It, it really mm. is,
0: although it doesn't have what you would call a, a traditional character arc because, I mean, <laughs> tell me if I'm wrong, but I don't think Dennis learns anything during the course of this movie. <laughs> yeah. Best
1: special, special effect. effect. If it counts, it's the it has to be the jabberwock itself which mm. is i think it's just mm. fabulous it's again I, I was watching it with my son and he kept saying do you actually see the monster Are we ever actually going to see the monster and i was kind of thinking mm. we, we will but don't get too <laughs> excited because you yeah. know you're used to marvel movies and so on yeah but it ended up being a lot more convincing and used a lot more as well in that final scene than I mm. remembered for some reason. And it's just such mm. a great design, as we've said, based on the original illustration. Mm. The whole thing's decomposing, like everything else in this world. It's yeah. old and broken and falling apart and presumably used to be able to fly, which it doesn't really do. It kind of flaps about some trees mm. and stuff, I think. But it You know, I don't think it can actually fly anymore and just part of this world. Mm. Mm.
0: Definitely, yeah. My favorite was we've mentioned it before the Jabberwock's victims bodies <laughs> just these these juicy skeletons seemingly stripped of everything other than the heads which are pristine and left to sort of look at their terrible state that they're in in horror which <laughs> yeah. is strangely more horrifying in fact the the American censor was determined to cut those shots out because they found that particularly disturbing They said, yeah, the skeleton's fine, but the the head looking down is just really (laughs) disturbing. Can you cut before you get to that? Yeah. (laughs) Favourite
1: sound effect. I've mentioned the flies and just the general sort of background horror texture and so on, but it is the sound of a knight being hurled to the ground. Gilliam manages to get, or the sound designer manages to get, so much dense weight into <laughs> into the clanging of armour as the, it sounds like the earth is being broken by the impact of this of this night. I don't know why, but I just love those sounds. I love all the sounds of the knights clanking and creaking and so <laughs> on, but especially when they're smashed by something or thrown to the ground. Yeah, yeah. A lot of impact. <laughs> yeah.
0: Mine was just a, an old friend of ours, Dan, and I heard it within like the opening seconds oh, of the I movie. I you're going to say, yes. It's the red-tailed yeah. hawk. <laughs> <laughs> you have to have a red-tailed hawk. It doesn't matter where you are in the world. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, normally it's used to symbolise,
2: you know, the Wild West or like uh, like the the yeah. wilderness in
1: America, but it's it's used like three or four times in this movie <laughs> yeah <laughs> i think i know the effect you mean actually i think i know the the, scr- the, 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 screeching... the bird screech yeah 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 there's there's yeah, a familiar yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah it's usually in a cartoon you would you would cut to a desert and hear that yeah. noise i was going
1: yeah. to say yeah it's, i feel like it's used a lot in he-man yes i don't know if i'm imagining that probably but... yes I think you're yeah. right.
0: I think you're right. Most funniest, funniest moment.
1: The scene I remember most is in the workshop where Dennis destroys everything by trying to be helpful. Mm. Ever since I was a child, when I think of Jabberwocky, I pictured Dennis moving that tray of rivets and <laughs> instigating <laughs> the destruction of half the kingdom, basically, it seems. <laughs> yeah.
0: And, and shot in, like, a day or something. Yeah. Was it? Yeah. Yeah.
1: Wow. <laughs> and I think it's Harry H. Corbett's intro as well. That's his first scene, I think. Right. And, and, yeah, I, I, yeah I, I love that scene. Yeah.
2: It, it escalates to the extreme that I didn't even think it would go. Like, huge, <laughs> mm-hmm. big cog wheels are falling over. Uh, and people are getting flung, yeah, horizontally across the room somehow yeah. um, and, and then right at the end one of the characters just pushes a pillar over because he's just like well might as well <laughs> yeah uh,
0: funniest scene for me aside from being one of my favourite shots the source of one of my favourite shots it is the jousting
2: yeah and
0: I think it's just the cartoon mayhem of it and the senselessness of it all yeah but I do enjoy that scene a great deal. It's the one that I found myself laughing the most, and also the satire of the monarchy being slowly drenched in yeah, blood as yeah. a result of their carelessness. yes <laughs> and
1: also what what the scene going on? There's the, the violence and so on of the of the joust, but they're just kind of chatting amongst themselves, John Lemes and uh, Max Wall, and and the, and every their dialogue is brilliant in that scene as well. It's all very very funny yeah. stuff. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Okay, and that's our Moobly Awards.
2: Hi, I'm Chris McKay. I'm the director of Renfield, and you're listening to Movie Oubliette. Okay, it's time for our final verdicts. Should Jabberwocky from 1977 be released from the Ubliet to terrorize the land and be worshipped by its silliness, or should it be urinated on, strapped to a trebuchet, and flung back into the Ubliet, lost forever? Uh, Rob, Jabberwocky, should modern audiences see this movie?
1: Yeah I th- I think the answer to that question is both of those things should happen to it because people should obviously see it but I mean if any movie should be urinated on it's this one because it would love it it wants to be urinated on it wants to be hurled about it wants to be treated badly but I mean obviously I'm going to say people should see it and people should see it with an open mind don't see it expecting Monty Python because I'm still mm. kind of staggered at how poorly received and poorly considered this film is because I genuinely think it's a masterpiece. I, I, cinema doesn't get much better than this for me and mm. it deserves all the attention and it deserves a reappraisal.
2: Yeah, I mean, I don't know whether I would recommend this to everyone. Like, I, I felt like I there were lots of jokes I didn't get. There were lots of references and actors that I had no idea who they were. I, I do get... That it's important in terms of of the trajectory of of Terry Gilliam and and the Monty Python as, as just like a cultural icon of a time. Like there is a lot of humor in this movie that you just don't see anymore, uh, and it is very much of that sort of era and and that type of humor. And yeah, maybe modern audiences wouldn't get it, <laughs> but it is important, I think, in in terms of Terry Gilliam and that sort of path of of cinema as well in in britain i guess Mm,
1: yeah so you would say i would
2: i would i would
1: okay Okay. You can't say otherwise now with me <laughs> looking at you. I <laughs> well,
0: no, I, I I have to say I am in two minds about it though. Because I didn't go into it thinking it's going to be Monty Python, and and I didn't go into it thinking it's going to be fully fledged Terry Gilliam. And I think you have to do that because it's nightmare. yeah, It really is a transitional mm. film. But for all that, I did find the first viewing, I did think, well, the middle is a bit saggy. I sort of love the ending, I love the beginning, and I love bits of the middle, but I'm sort of a bit confused. Mm. But it was only when I watched it a second time that I thought, oh, actually, this is just a good time for a hundred minutes. Yeah. I think yeah. it's a expectation. And beautifully crafted. It's a expectation. You
2: go on, you're yeah. thinking, oh, it's going to be a dragon film, I guess and and it's not really it's it's just a lot of no. dialogue and and ridiculous Absurdity.
1: Yeah, it is. I, I think that's a valid point about the middle. I, I think it could be five minutes shorter. Yes, probably. Uh, I think that lost from the middle that that would probably work
0: out. Mm, I think so. But I think on the whole, I I can't possibly see myself throwing it back into the ublyet and not recommending it just because it is such a beautifully made film with such a, a, a treasure trove of wonderful performances mm. and moments in it. Mm. It it would just seem a shame to throw it in there or or even claim that it's a bad. Movie. Movie. And it's not a so bad it's good movie or anything along those lines. It's just odd. It's an odd <laughs> <Yeah>. little film. <laughs> yeah. And quite unique. And it's not who Terry became. It's not who Monty Python were. It's just this odd little movie. Yeah. And I think it'd be a shame if people overlooked it. So, yeah, just go into it with the right mindset, I (laughs) think. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And in the right mood as well. It's not something to be taken too seriously. It's something I I think works with a drink or with a friend. Yeah. That's the way to do it, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I'd agree. Well, I think we're all on the same page,
0: but (laughs) let's check in with our patrons. Hello, Hal. Yes, Conrad. Can I have the patrons vote, please? I didn't see this coming.
1: They want to chuck it back in. Ah. I don't believe it. Well,
0: were they all
2: Americans? Is that that... that, that? <laughs>
0: <laughs> I don't know. Eddie Coulter said, I say let the Jabberwocky run wild. I've been a fan of this movie since I first saw it on VHS. You can see the themes that Gilliam will build upon in his later films. Plus, how can you not love the design of that monster? Yeah, well said. Yeah. Yes. Whereas Chazilla said, I'm on the fence with this one. This isn't official Monty Python, but it's some of the troupe and definitely that kind of humour. Sometimes I get it, sometimes I don't. Mm. I think the title Jabberwocky is very misleading. (laughs) You don't actually see the Jabberwocky until ten minutes from the end. (laughs) I think a a better name for it would be Dennis's Continuing Adventures in the Land of Filth. (laughs) (laughs) I think that could be a subtitle, couldn't (laughs) it? You know, one of those colon movies. And finally, our patron Jasmine said, I went into this expecting a lot of fun adventure and good belly laughs. Instead, I was confronted with meandering, redundant scenes of Michael Palin wandering the city, a quest that does not truly kick in until 82 minutes into the film and quote-unquote humour involving body parts, blood splatter and our hero being figuratively and literally urinated on <laughs> over <laughs> and over again. I didn't even crack a smile until the 103-minute mark and that was when the end credits mercifully rolled. Oh, oh so, <laughs> so, yeah a broad spectrum of views yeah 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 i think overall i think we're setting it free yes
1: yeah, yeah.
2: it's going free okay <laughs> off you go jabberwock
0: <laughs> <laughs> so rob it's been absolutely delightful to have you on the show where can our listeners follow you and find out more about what you have coming up next
1: Well, uh, YouTube is my main home. Uh, My channel's called The Bad Movie Bible. Check me out there. I don't do an awful lot of social media, if I'm honest, but I am on Twitter. Um, I still call it Twitter as a point of principle. Um, I am (laughs) on Twitter. And I'm reasonably active there still, but YouTube's the, the place to go, really. It's, it's brave of you to be active on Twitter. It's, it's very much like
0: a Terry Gilliam quarry now with just a few burning bits <laughs> and horrible people. <laughs> <laughs>
1: so you're, yeah, Yeah, that's fair enough. Yeah.
0: Is there a video coming up on the editing table at the moment, maybe?
1: Yeah, I'm working at the moment. I did a, I had a big project at the end of last year, was on uh, ninja movies, the, 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 the sort of the broad history of the 1980s ninja movie craze. Mm. And I'm working at the moment on a an episode of Borrowing Blockbusters, which is my main series, looking at the best and worst, but mainly the best worst, uh, rip-offs of <laughs> famous or popular genre movies and i'm doing an indiana jones episode at the moment which should be up next month
0: marvelous i will look forward to that (laughs) Well, thanks so much for joining us.
1: Thanks for having me. It's been great.
2: So, listeners, if you do want to follow us, we are on all social media platforms as Movie Oubliette, uh, including TikTok. um, But you can also email us the old-fashioned
0: way uh, (laughs) at movie.oubliette at gmail.com. I almost wish that people could write to us on you know the old oh, paper way. yeah right like yeah. snail mail <laughs> yeah and we had a p.o. box number that'd be great and we actually have real mailbag that we have to physically open <laughs> to open yeah you could hear the sort of paper crinkling noises on the show i think that'd be lovely yeah i mean yes. asmr <laughs> yeah all right Maybe we will organize yeah. a p.o. box sometime <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Meanwhile, if you'd like to support the show, maybe to pay for our Bo box, yeah. then head on over to Patreon, where for as little as a dollar, you can nominate and vote on films that we'll be featuring in future episodes. For $5, you can vote on the final verdict and get access to our exclusive monthly Minnesodes. And for $10, you can be an executive producer with exclusive behind-the-scenes knowledge like Chazilla, Eddie Coulter, Isaac Sutton, Dr. Doggy, Surge, and Iconographer.
2: Mm. Yes, yes. Uh, We have merchandise on Redbubble and a YouTube channel as well. You can peruse through. Mm. And if you haven't given us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you're listening to us, please uh, give us a five-star review and all your Nice comments. Yes.
0: Loads of them. Mm. (laughs) Yeah.
2: Okay, next episode. Conrad,
0: what are we doing? Well, we're going to be celebrating the release of Denis Villeneuve's Dune Part 2, starring Timothee Chalamet. Yes, 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 yes. yes. By doing something that you've been wanting to do for a very long time, which is the 1984 American epic space opera Dune. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) yes. I read the book. Yes. This is
2: one of those rare occasions. I've actually read the book and I've read the sequel. Mm. Is this the first time we're doing David Lynch on the podcast? I think it is.
0: Yeah. I think it is. Yeah. David Lynch is only major flop, I think, really. Right.
2: Right. Yeah. I mean, he never did the whole blockbuster thing anyway. So this is
0: quite unusual. No. I think famously George Lucas was trying to get him to direct Return of the Jedi. Really? I Uh, didn't know that. Yes, but he showed up at Industrial Light and Magic with a massive headache and nothing that transpired during the rest of his visit made it any better. So that was the end of that. Wow, okay. So can you imagine David Lynch's (laughs) Return of the Jedi? (laughs) I would love to see that. Yeah, I would actually. (laughs) But yes, no, instead we've got his take on Dune featuring Carl McLaughlin. Patrick Stewart, Brad Dourif, Dean Stockwell, Virginia Madsen, Jose Ferrer, Sting, Mm. Linda Hunt, and Max von (laughs) Sydow. It's quite the cast, yeah. Pretty an amazing lineup, but a massive flop. So, yeah, about time for a retrospective, I think.
2: Yeah, yeah. And I have the source material mm. in my brain that I can compare.
0: Ah.
2: Maybe it'll be better than Dreamcatcher. Maybe.
0: Who knows? <laughs> Who knows? The dog didn't eat this one, so you yeah. No, no, I have the book intact. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay, well,
2: we'll look forward to that next time. Yes, yes. Alright, listeners. Until then. Bye. Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs>
0: others tend to forget come with us and open up the movie you you whimpering snotty-nosed cretinous oaf